0: Good morning and welcome back to the beginning of the fall ministry year. Everything starts today, right? We've rested this summer. We're all, uh, bags under our eyes are all gone now, right? And uh, we're ready to get back to work. Well, I wear glasses so that you can't tell about the bags under my eyes. But anyway, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, we're continuing our study through the book of Matthew and for the last number of months, our sojourn here in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7 this morning, looking at verses 7 through 14. When I was younger and my children were much younger, we would have a habit in our home of reading. We'd read to the kids several times a week, read out loud. They enjoyed it, and it was good practice for me. I enjoyed the time together with them. And one of the um, family favorites was the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. We really enjoyed reading that series together as a family. It was uh, captured the imagination of the children across the uh, age ranges and provided opportunities to speak about spiritual things in the application of those stories. So, for us, the Chronicles of Narnia were a family favorite. The first book in that series, as you are probably well aware, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that book begins and opens up the whole world of Narnia by following the life of four children, four siblings, the Pevensey siblings, who during World War II are moved out of London to avoid the Blitz, and they are relocated to a mansion in the country, a rather strange mansion with a strange man. And looking to occupy themselves, they're playing hide-and-seek and exploring this particular old home. They discover an empty spare room in that room is a wardrobe. And entering into that wardrobe, I'm sure you'll remember, is a doorway into the magical land of Narnia. Through the doorway into Narnia. Now, the concept of passing through a doorway from one realm or one world to the next is not merely something that occupies children's literature, children's fiction. It actually also, that concept, appears in the Scriptures. Passing through the door from one realm to another is a biblical concept. We have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has been providing the manifesto for his kingdom. And he has promised us here many, many things, those who are his disciples. He has pictured his kingdom as a place of great blessedness. Early in chapter 5, we find the Beatitudes, you remember, and there's a number of statements about blessed are they who enter into that kingdom. It's a place of blessedness. It's a place of great happiness. But it's also a a place uh, in which there is pain, not in the place itself, but the entrance is a path of pain and difficulty. He says it will bring about persecution, like they persecuted the prophets before you. Furthermore, he says that his entrance into his kingdom has an impossible set of standards. It is the perfection of God himself for which we have to continually look to the grace of God to have any hope at trying to live like that and to find the forgiveness we need when we don't. Messiah's kingdom. We also learned last week in the beginning part of chapter 7 about judging. And he spoke about the need to judge humbly and the need to judge wisely. And finishing that section there in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, really brings us to the end of the instructive portion of his Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is now drawing to a close, and like any good sermon, there needs to be an appeal at the end a call to respond, to do something with the truth that you have been hearing. And so that's exactly what Jesus is going to do beginning this morning and until we finish out chapter 7, is an extended appeal to the crowds. You'll remember way back in chapter 5, that he is speaking verse one he saw the crowds it says and went up on the mountain he sat down and his disciples came to him there were crowds of people there are those who are his disciples to whom he has been speaking but he has been speaking to them and through them to a vast multitude who have been on the edges i sort of picture in my mind that as he's continued to speak, they've sort of drawn closer and closer and closer to listen to what this man has to say. In fact, by the time we arrive at the end of chapter 7, the issue of the crowds arises again, verse 28. Where Matthew tells us when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. They have been pulled in. They have never heard anything like this at any time in their lives. And it has captivated them and drawn them in. The question now becomes is, what will they do with what they have heard? Will it remain only of intellectual curiosity Or will it move from the head to the heart and actually transform them? Jesus' desire, like the desire of any preacher when he preaches a sermon, is that it will move the will of those who hear. That they will be transformed, that they will be affected by what they hear, processed through their mind, translated to their heart, and out through their hands, and it will transform their lives. That's what Jesus is after. Will the crowds choose to follow him or not? He has given them the path of discipleship. He has explained to them over and over and over again what it means to follow the Messiah. The question now is, will they follow? Will they follow? He begins his appeal for us this morning with the metaphor of a door. He uses the metaphor of a door and it's woven into verses 7 through 14. It is this metaphor of a door, the door here equaling entrance, entrance onto the path of discipleship, the end result of which is one's citizenship in Messiah's kingdom. You enter onto the path of discipleship through a door. The question is, Will you go through? Will they come through the door? So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the importance of that door. Jesus emphasizing that importance of, of entering onto the path, and he does it by providing a three-fold description of the door. Threefold description of the door, which emphasizes the importance of entering onto the path of discipleship. The end result of the path of discipleship is citizenship in Messiah's kingdom when it comes. So are you ready? Here we go. Number one, the door is open. The door is open. It's available to all who will come. Beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? The door is open. Now frequently in evangelicalism, when we use the expression an open door, we mean by that a reference to the various decision points that God providentially brings into our lives. It's the means by which God governs us, right, providentially. And so when there are various options before us, we speak about open doors and closed doors, right? God opened up a door of employment opportunity. God closed the door of school choice and on and on and on. We talk about these open and closed doors. The interesting thing, though, is that in Scripture, the concept of the open door never is, refers to God's decision or providence by which we make decisions. It never refers to how God leads his children throughout life. The open door in Scripture relates either to admission into Messiah's kingdom or to gospel-preaching opportunities that are fruitful in that they produce converts who enter into Messiah's kingdom. So the concept of the open door is the concept of entrance into Messiah's kingdom, or what we would say as heaven, today. I've entitled the message, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Let me show you this. I make this bold assertion, but let me just show you what I mean by this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14 and verse 27. Paul is reporting back now on his first missionary journey. He's reporting back to the church at, at Antioch that has sent him out. <coughs> Excuse me. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The concept of the open door is the concept here of fruitful gospel preaching. 1 Corinthians, we won't turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul speaks about his time in Corinth there, and he refers to it as a, a door that was opened wide to me in Corinth. And you remember that he spent a considerable amount of time in Corinth, and many converts were made, and a church was born. He refers to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, in a different context. He says, there I, I stopped over in Troas, and there was a, a wide open door for me, and yet because of the discouragement that Paul was feeling at the time, he was unable to take advantage of those gospel preaching opportunities. You can take a look at Colossians. You can go ahead and turn there, Colossians chapter 4, and verse 3. Picking it up in verse 2, Paul says to the church at Colossae, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Again, the concept of the open door is the concept of gospel preaching, effective gospel preaching. It's also the the concept of kingdom access. An open door can refer, the metaphor of the open door can refer to kingdom access. We see that in Revelation. So you can check it out in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. Verse 8. Jesus Speaking to the church at Philadelphia through the Apostle John, he says to them, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have not and have kept my word and have not denied my name. I put before you the open door, an open door. You can look up just a verse before that, verse seven. Where it says, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, says this, I put before you this open door. Again, you see the the concept of the Davidic kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, combined with the concept of the open door. Chapter 4, verse 1, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice of which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And John is transported in spirit into the presence of God, into the throne room of God. So the open door, again, referring to access into Messiah's kingdom or effective gospel preaching, which brings people into Messiah's kingdom. So just hold on to that. Keep that in mind. If you still like to talk about open doors for other purposes, that's okay. But just remember that, biblically speaking, the open door is a gospel door. A gospel door. So let's take a look at specifically what Jesus says here in his appeal back to verse 7 of Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be open for everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. Notice the, the absolute nature of these promises. Absolute nature. If you pray in this way, you will receive what you're asking for. Now, there are no end of commentators who have struggled over these two verses. And the reason they struggle over these verses is because it appears to be a blank check. And immediately it comes to mind for them that, that this cannot possibly be what Jesus means. He cannot mean that, that all I have to do in prayer is just is persistently ask for something and God guarantees me that he will provide it. They think, no, 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 what, well, wait a minute. There, what about the things about, you know, having... To ask for forgiveness and having to pray in faith and having to say if it be God's will and and all of those other teachings in Scripture with regard to prayer. Jesus couldn't possibly give this kind of ironclad promise and invitation. Oh, yeah, he could. In fact, he does. He is. Grammatically, there's no escape of it. He is speaking here very clearly. The problem is we need to figure out what the it is. A little teeny pronoun, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, implied it. Knock and it will be opened to you. What is the it that Jesus is promising? That Jesus would use such unequivocal language with regard to well, my friends, the it is Messiah's kingdom. He is drawing to, to a close a lengthy sermon addressing Messiah's kingdom. It's not time to change topics. It's not time to, to throw out some sort of promise of prayer answer for all kinds of things, but only one thing. And that is those who will pursue messiah's kingdom and pursue it notice with with the way he he stacks this up here these imperatives there's three of them ask seek and knock he's stacking it up for emphasis there's a there's a use of a present imperative here so there's there's the the idea with it of persistence so those who are persistent in seeking the it will get it will receive the answer to their prayer Now there's only the only prayer that, that, that Jesus is going to promise like that in this context is entrance into the kingdom. This is about asking God persistently, repeatedly, with, with emphasis to allow me into your kingdom. Beloved, listen. The entrance requirement, you remember it back from from, uh, chapter 5 and verse 20? Be refreshed. Let your eyes glance back to chapter 5 and verse 20, to the entrance requirement into this kingdom. He says that you will not get in unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most outwardly religious and righteous people of the day. When it comes to, to an outward form of religious devotion, no one could exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, you won't get in. Even if you could, could come to their level, you will not gain entrance. The point of it is, is, is that there's no way in through self-effort. You can't be righteous enough. You can't demonstrate character qualities high enough for God to say, Come on in. Because God sets a very simple standard, chapter 5, verse 48. You want to approach God on your own? Go for it. His standard is simple be perfect like he is perfect. Just be perfect. That's all it takes as we have said repeatedly, if there is anything we know about in this life, it's nobody is. Fill it in. Perfect. It's an impossible test. The entrance requirements are beyond us. That means that we are thrown upon the mercy and grace of God. And therefore, we must ask... For, for entrance, for permission to come in, for God to do what is impossible for me to do and for you to do. We must beseech God, not casually, but persistently, regularly. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, this is not a new concept. This is not something that, that Jesus just sort of created and, and pulled out of the air. This is the, this is the way God has instructed His people since the beginning, is that if you want entrance, you must ask. For example, in Isaiah chapter 55 and, and verse six, there the prophet says, "Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon him while He is near." Call out to God. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29, and an interesting prophecy given by Moses a long time before the nation would ultimately go into apostasy. But there in the words of Moses, he writes, verse 29 of chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, but from there, that is from the dispersion, from the, from the place where you have been sent when you have been evicted from the land, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 and verse 13 writes, you will seek me and find me when you search for me With all your heart. You see, the concept here of of seeking, asking, knocking, searching is built into the scriptures from the beginning. We are to seek after God, and the promise is that the door will be opened to you if you will but seek it, if you will but pursue Him. Now, Jesus illustrates this reality of the open door here by appealing to to the the response of a human father to his children. He's saying, listen, the father is is willing, he's desirous of throwing the door open to you. And let me show you what I mean by that. Let me speak about how you respond to your children and, and use that as an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this is the way you respond to your children, won't God respond much more so to you? So Jesus speaks to them, beginning in verse 9, about the, the stone and the snake. The stone and the snake. Now, this gets lost on us a little bit. We... we you know, there's some cultural things going on here. The, the stones in Israel were, were of a, such a uh, shape and color that it could be at a distance sort of um, misinterpreted for a small flat loaf of bread. Commentators talk about the snake, and there's differences of opinion there as to how a snake and a fish could look like each other, and I'm not sure about all that. But the, but the basic point of it all is, is that the stone and the snake are deceptive and dangerous substitutes for something the child desires and needs. That's the point. And Jesus raises this with them and then points at them And interestingly, right, he he says to them in verse 11, calling out dramatically their, their fallen nature, if you then being evil, I wonder how that went over, by the way, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, right, won't your heavenly Father give the kingdom to you? That's the idea of it. If it's it's unthinkable for a fallen human father to, to deceive his child in this way, then much more so when you ask the Heavenly Father for entrance into his kingdom, he will welcome you in. The door is wide open for you if you will but ask. It's open to anyone who will ask. Secondly... The door is open. Secondly, the door is costly. The door is costly. And what I mean by that is it will radically change you. It will radically change you. We arrive in verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophet's we arrive at what is commonly known as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule. Now, it's called the golden rule, at least reportedly so, because a a certain Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, and he ruled early in the 3rd century, he was not a Christian, but reportedly he was so impressed with the ethic behind this that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. And that's why it's known as the Golden Rule, thanks to a Roman emperor. Now let's take a look at it. It begins with the statement, therefore. You see it? It begins with the, with the word, Therefore. And when we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what is it? Therefore. Okay? Yeah, you got it. Therefore is a summary word. It's a word that clues us in that there is about to be made a statement in summary form that that applies something that has been taught earlier. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is summarizing in one verse the entire sermon. One verse, the entire sermon. And in fact, he's not only summarizing the entire sermon, he is going to summarize the entire Old Testament in one verse. In everything, therefore, or therefore in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Notice, for this Is the law and the prophets. Now, that expression, the law and the prophets, occurs earlier in the sermon, verse 17 of chapter 5, where Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The two references to the law and the prophets form what commentators call an inclusio, it's just their bookends. It begins the topic, it ends the topic. It begins all of what Jesus wants to talk about and summarizes it again at the other end. So it's a clue to let you know that everything that's gone between those statements is being gathered up. He's drawing the sermon to a close, and he's doing it with a reference to the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets, he says. This simple golden rule is the law and the prophets. And what he means by that is that it summarizes the ethical demands of the law and the prophets, which is another way to say the Old Testament. The entire ethical demand of the Old Testament can be reduced to just a few words. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Everything else is commentary upon that Ethic, that statement. The rest of the Old Testament is a commentary on that. Notice also that Jesus says, in everything. Do you see that? In everything. By that little expression, he he is confirming that the, the ethic of the golden rule is broad enough to encompass everything. That nothing escapes this little rule this little expression it's gathering it all up you don't need thousands and thousands of individual regulations to cover each and every specific occurrence all you need to know is the golden rule and then apply it and you will be on solid ground a disciple of Jesus Christ can clearly rightly, and God-pleasingly be directed in the proper way of relating to and loving his fellow man in this small expression. It's all gathered up here. In the same way you want them to treat you, you treat them. Now, it's important to note that this is not a utilitarian statement. It's not a utilitarian statement. It's, it's not something like, uh, honesty pays. Okay? That's a utilitarian statement. What that says is, be honest because it's good for business. Or, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's a utilitarian kind of statement. This is not one of those We're not to find the the purpose in doing good to other people in the expectation that they will, in turn, do good to us. It's a one-way street. It's a one-way street. Regardless of how they respond to us, we are to do good to other people. Why? Because it emulates the character of God. You remember earlier in chapter 5 and verse 45, Jesus says you are to love your neighbor." And your enemy? Why? Because it because it makes you like a son of your father. That's the way he is. You're to love in the same way, my friends. It is the essence of the law and the prophets. It is the essence of the law and the prophets to do to others as you would have them do unto you. Now, this statement is is powerful short. It's pithy. It's something you can remember, and it's powerful. It's more than just a a prohibition of doing wrong. It doesn't say, don't do evil to other people. And that would be a good statement, but it wouldn't go far enough. Because you you could be compliant with that without actually loving. You could say, hey, you know what? I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen, you know. And you can say, I've never done evil to anyone. But that's not what a kingdom citizen behaves like. That's not the way way a kingdom citizen responds. A kingdom citizen has a has a, a a duty, a requirement that is higher than merely that. It goes beyond merely the absence of evil to others, the absence of hurtfulness to others, to the positive of doing good to others. That's radical. That is a radical ethic. That is a radical way to live. It will change us. When we get our arms around it and we we begin to to seek by the Spirit of God to implement this kind of radical love in our life, it will change us. It will change our priorities. It will change our, our values. It will change our goals. It will change the way we respond to other people i like to be so bold as to say that this is what it means to be holy as God is holy. To love others as you would have them love you is another way of saying be holy like your heavenly father is holy. It is a radical kind of love. And it encapsulates what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What it means to to enter into the pathway of discipleship. And it's only possible by the grace of God working in your soul. You cannot conjure this up. You cannot cannot muster up enough self-control or enough self-discipline to possibly live in this kind of way. Only God can change us. Only God can put within our heart the desire to, to love other people this way. Only God can can grant us through his indwelling spirit the, the power to live this kind of life. It is a radical life, and it is a costly life. A costly life. Let's see if we can apply for a little bit this golden rule to some specific situations. We can begin to maybe grasp some of the implications of it. The golden rule will make you generous with your possessions. The golden rule will make you generous with your possessions because you will see others as people with real needs that you can personally help. It will it'll separate people out of the pack. When we we lump people together, it's easy to ignore them. It's when we peel it apart and we begin to see people as individuals, with individual needs, that all of a sudden we begin to to be moved in our hearts and we begin to love them as they need to be loved. The application of the golden rule, that is you wanting to be seen as an individual yourself, will help you see others as individuals. It will make you generous. It will cause your speech to change. And that is that that you will begin to build people up by your words rather than tear them down. We've all felt the pain of unkind words, haven't we? We all know the lie of that childhood rhyme, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? How untrue that is. Some of us bearing scars even into adulthood from such things. When we remember the pain of words, unkind words, it will move us to speak in such a way to others that builds them up. And if, and if we cannot speak to build them up, we will not say anything at all. It will change the way we handle relationships. Relationships. It will expand uh, the circles of friendships into which we find ourselves. We will become more inclusive rather than exclusive. We will seek to draw others in, strangers in, and and to welcome them and to love them in in real and practical ways because we know the pain of rejection. We know the pain of being on the outside. And we we can feel that pain and we we do not out of love want another person to feel that themselves. It'll transform our relationships. We will no longer look in. We will turn and look out. We will look out. Men, it will help us in our fight for mental purity. The golden rule applied in the power of the Spirit will will help us in our fight for mental purity because what it will do is it will transform the way we see women. Women. We will see them as a a person made in the image of God to be valued with dignity and and not some sort of image or impersonal object for our own sinful gratifications. It will absolutely change the way we fight for mental purity. Ladies, the golden rule will, will help you to consider modesty in your own dress. You will begin to to think about things like your brothers in Christ and how your attire and the way you handle yourself might affect their spiritual health. And you'll be more cautious and more careful as you get ready in the morning to go out, recognizing that it can have a real effect on the people around you. You want to edify them. You want to, you want to lift them up because, because you want to grow in Christ and you want them to grow in Christ too. Very, very practical ways. This Sermon on the Mount, or excuse me, this golden rule. And the power of the Spirit will change the way we live. The door is open. The door is costly. And finally, the door is Restrictive. The door is restrictive, and what I mean by that is is you enter alone and empty-handed. You enter alone and empty-handed. Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, for us moderns, we, we see the word gate. We, we sort of think of that as something that you can just sort of open up and walk on through. But in the New Testament times, that was not true. Before a, you would approach a home, there would be a gate. There would be a wall and a gate, and, and you would have to knock at the gate and, and receive permission. And when the gate was open, then you would enter into the path that would lead up to the door of the home itself. We see that, for example, in Acts chapter 12 with, with Peter, right? And he, he's coming to get into the prayer meeting when the disciples are praying for his release and he knocks at the gate and the slave girl Rhoda comes and opens it up and says, "Ah, oh, Peter's here. No, it must be a ghost. She closes the door, right? Because God couldn't possibly have answered the prayer that we've been praying for. you got to knock at the gate in order to get in. It has to be opened to you. Notice how Jesus presents here the... The alternative, just two. Just two. You contrast two gates that lead to two paths. One gate is narrow. The path is difficult. The path is compressed is kind of the idea of the Greek. The other gate is wide and and the path is roomy. It couldn't be further from each other in the contrast. The the wide and the roomy path is, is filled with people. The other one is Frequently traveled alone. One path leads to to life in Messiah's kingdom. The other appears to be a path leading to life, but in the end, the bridge is out and off one goes into the abyss. Can't help but think about Proverbs and the way the book of Proverbs continues to present two ways, right? One way leads to life. One way leads to death. It's interesting as well that um, by midway through the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus Christ have become known now as those who are part of the way. Followers of the way. This concept caught hold. Now the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about here, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, verse 14, the gate is narrow, has been often compared to a turnstile. A turnstile. And I think that's probably a pretty good comparison for us to sort of understand what he's talking about. You know, you, you go into get into a sports event or something like that. You have to go through a turnstile. And they're designed to allow only one person at a time to enter through. And they're also designed in such a way that you can't carry a lot of baggage with you. It sort of strips you and, and, a, and allows you to squeeze through one at a time. Beyond that, the, the, the way is narrow. It speaks of it here in verse 14. It, it has the idea of a small path between two large cliffs. They sort of squeeze in on you. So it's, it's through the turnstile, and it's into this narrow, constricted, difficult, winding path. They get through the turnstile and onto the path, You've got to leave every stu- all your stuff behind. You can't bring your luggage with you. Things like a desire for worldly success and, and acclaim, that, that gets stripped off in the turnstile. Focus on wealth gets turned around and stripped away. Probably most particularly your, your self-righteousness that, that characterizes your religious achievement all gets peeled away. There's no room for that on the path. It exposes you as a traveler of that path to to hardships, to to difficulties. Even Jesus says to persecutions. But the end goal of the path is certain, right? Take a look at it. Verse, the end of verse 14, it leads to life. It leads to life. Maybe there's a sign over the path. was thinking about that. Maybe this is like a sign over the path. This way to heaven, leave all behind. And then there's another path. Right? This one's the wide path. Wide gate, wide path, carry your stuff with you. There's probably a sign over that one too. I think the sign over that one would be the same way. This way to heaven. Come one, come all, join the crowd. That would be the sign over this one. It doesn't say this way to hell. It says, this way to heaven. And everybody's on it, and you can bring your friends, and, and you don't have to really change much of anything. You can, you can drag all your junk with you right up to the door. And then the bridge is out. And then the bridge is out. And you tumble into the abyss. Traveling the wide path, it doesn't require any real sacrifice. You can drag along your baggage... Your, your sinful self-indulgences, your, your spiritual pride, you can just sort of bring it all along. Hey, look at me. You know, look at this designer luggage I got. Those poor slobs over there. You know, naked. Working their way along. One leads to life. One leads, one leads to death. Here's, the, here's the, the point. What path are you on? I mean, ask yourself, what path am I on? Where am I headed in life? And you know, you can, you can tell by looking around. The narrow path is, is clear. The wide path is clear. You just need to pause and look around. What path am I on? Where am I going? I'd like to take a minute or two and give you some private reflection time. I mean, we have been hammering away on the Sermon on the Mount now for months. We have worked through every single beatitude one at a time. We've worked our way through all of the issues of personal relationships the end of chapter 5, we've, we've talked about the hypocrisy of practicing our religious achievements externally. We've dealt with the issue of who is our master, Jesus or mammon, wealth. We've hammered home about anxiety, right, that follows those that serve wealth. And we finished last week talking about Judgment. Time to reflect. Time to ask yourself, what path am I on? Where am I going in life? Let me give you a minute or two to do that. Just bow your heads. Before God, let Him search your heart. Our Father, the the way of life is restrictive. The way of life is costly. But all praise to you, the way of life is open to any who will come, any who will seek it. I pray, O God, for those in the room this morning who upon reflection realize they are on the wrong road. Our Father, may you move them to come and to ask and to receive the gift of eternal life. And for those of us, our Father, who have received the gift but have kind of lost track of it, The craziness of this life. The things of this world have have caused the the path to grow even more difficult for us. We look over and see those that seem to be enjoying themselves on the wide path. And here we are on the narrow path and we're we're having troubles. Remind us again, O God, of the destination. Let us knock on heaven's door and let us continue to keep knocking, knowing that you will invite us in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.